Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kalise Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up, Dave Hayes, the weather nut with a scoop on the storm. And Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid on the Super Bowl and on a rare meteorite that hit the Earth last month. But first. We need our heroes. Hello. Hello. I'm Woo. Yeah. Nothing like a punctual rock star. Very rare. Peter Francis Leo is an American singer and musician. He's been a member of the band Citizens Arrest, Chisel, Puzzlehead, and the Sin Eaters. He's the frontman and lead guitarist of the rock group Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. And in 2013, he and Amy Mann founded the indie rock duo The Both. Although born in Indiana, Ted Leo grew up in New Jersey, graduating from Seton Hall and later the University of Notre Dame, Ted Leo and the Pharmacists was formed in 1999 in D.C. The group recorded six studio albums between 1999 and 2010. Ted Leo has also maintained a consistent presence as a solo performer since the 90s. Leo released his debut solo album after all of that, The Hanged Man, on September 8, 2017. The album was inspired by several years of career and personal hardships. As such, it's a beautifully brooding album with his classic combination of insight, empathy, and wit. Ted Leo comes to us to play Amherst at the Drake this Friday in a solo show and comes to you now on the Fabulous 413. Thanks for joining us, Ted Leo. Happy to be here. That was a very kind but extremely thorough bio. I don't know. We like to tell everybody everything about our guests and then just say, well, it's nice to be with you and then hang up. <laughs> yeah, you got your 20 minutes there. <laughs> But there's so much to talk about. We'll have a, a pile of things to talk about. First of which I wanted to ask you, like, you've been through, like, now four decades, four, five decades of the punk scene evolving and participating in it. What have you noticed about how things have changed? Hmm. Well, so there, you know, there, there are currents that never change. Um, they're kind of currents that, I guess, to belabor the current metaphor, you know, flow like a little a little more deeply underground that just kind of keep going and never change. And, and that's, um, that's something that's always great to see DIY shows, um, record labels, you know, um, people being more explicitly engaged with like politics and things, you know, the, those, those continue apace, but as time goes on, um, there's a lot that's still very satisfying to me about like a real, just kind of simple, like, street punk like oompa drum kind of kind of beat you know like oi street punk kind of song um but it's like you grow i mean everyone who's been involved in this for any amount of time tends to want to grow as as an artist and um, i was just talking with somebody about this the other day like it's really it's kind of silly maybe not silly but it's kind of hard to to define you know what is punk in quotes and um it's a it's trite but honestly i kind of think it just does come down to intent in some ways like intent attitude um because there's been music that has crossed into other genres you know pushed the, the boundaries of what is such and such a, a genre that it's hard to classify as anything but punk so it might not be that most simple like um distilled kind of form three chord like Ramonzi or you know oi band kind of form but um but you would still have to consider it punk like i mean the earliest and biggest example that i can think of is that is of that is like if you take the clash you know london calling album it's everywhere from reggae to acoustic guitars you know etc and and that's all been in the mix since the beginning so it's just how much you'd kind of choose to engage with it um 
that doesn't really answer your question about how things have changed. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I, I don't really know because I, it's, it, even the things that you want that I want to say have changed. Like they've always been there. Just bringing up the Clash, like they were on CBS. You know, they were on a major label. So you can't even say like, oh, when everybody talks about you know the mid. 1990 whatever being the year punk broke when nirvana and sonic youth you know got big and everything it's like well there were always punk bands that were on major labels you know they 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 did their thing and we who weren't did our thing and it's it's you know that kind of push and pull has always been part of the ideological um uh back and forth of the of that world that um that keeps it interesting and fresh. And as young people keep getting into it, they, they, you know, they bring their own ideas to it and, um, et cetera. And I've just, I just talked a lot and didn't say <laughs> <it>. <laughs> So I'm going to stop. And I'm gonna, maybe you'll have something to pick up. I think we got to there. <laughs> I think we did too. I mean, and it's interesting to talk about punk because I think it was Ian Mackay who said that punk is, is folk music. And mm. I, there is, there, there's a natural mm. synergy between what people think of as folk music and what, I think of and other people think of as punk music, Ian MacKay of Minor Threat and Fugazi and the record label that I think you were on Discord and I believe his well, wife was in one of your bands previously. Yeah, I, I was guess... never actually on Discord, but I did play, uh, Amy Farina was the drummer in one of the earlier uh, incarnations of The Pharmacist and mm-hmm. we were man friends. So I guess um, maybe a question to follow up on Kalisa's question is how have you changed? You know, and punk rock in the early days and if is filled with a lot of aggression and it's real fast and thrashy. Uh, a lot of your stuff can be considered like that, but a lot of your stuff is a little bit more contemplative, melodic, a little bit slower, but yet still brings up all the important political issues that folk music brings up, that punk rock mm. music has historically brought up, that The Clash brought up. So how, how have you changed in your relationship to punk music over these decades? Ted Leo of The Pharmacists, who will be at the Drake and Amherst <laughs> on Friday. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, like I think that the the... <laughs> The ways in which I've changed the most are, are just kind of growing, um, uh, growing as a person, learning how to deal with other people who you deal with in your scene and in your, <laughs> in your bands and et cetera, um, and getting older and, um, and the physical challenges that arise with, with getting older and still engaging in that, in that world. Um, you know, becoming a better songwriter, um, not feeling so fettered by the... Um, you know, the kind of seatbelts that we place on ourselves and we want to be considered part of a, part of a world or a genre or something, you know? Um, but I will say that ha- having gotten into punk like early enough when, for example, you know, reggae was a big part of it and reggae was, was is a big thing in my life and always has been. Um, the, uh, ability to like make something a little more jangly and not so like hard hard driving you know electric guitar was was always kind of part of it in the, in the earlier mix um in the early 80s late 70s and early 80s um when i started the band called chisel that i was in we started in like 89 i guess kind of concurrent with playing in other other hardcore bands but um you know we were much more of like a mod soul kind of punk band um and we were only 1920, you know, but we were already like, we got to go back to the to the roots of you know, like what we were what we were first getting into, and like not be so hung up on the the rules about hardcore and this and that, you know. So young and already like over some of that 
some of that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was the, that was the first step taking that, taking that kind of shift seriously, like, like, um, throwing off some of those social constraints and rules about like what you can and can't do within hardcore or punk, um, is probably was probably one of the bigger pivotal moments when you ask like what's changed for me because then i was able to just start becoming a better songwriter honestly and just think like not you know not being so hung up on um where it fit in and just trying to make the song fit to itself the way it it should like a puzzle or something hmm. we're speaking with ted leo who's playing the drake and amherst this friday i'm curious about how you choose collaborations and not just with the both or with finding bandmates and the pharmacist but you were one of the guests on steven universe in a really great arc where steven's learning to to merge with everybody <laughs> we love to, steven to universe to, steven universe yeah. is some of the best programming that has happened in like the last 20 years i advocate it to everybody it's an incredible it's, animated tv show if you've never seen it and it's so good it's so wonderful um so i like i had a chance to doubly fangirl out watching your episodes <laughs> because i was already uh enamored with your work and then here you are in another medium doing just as good work but like that's a, a broad span of things and like you've worked with bill childs and like doing stuff with wfmu mm. like how do you pick your collaborations oh uh well they just have to ask <laughs> <laughs> Generally, like, noted you know, just ask um, i don't have like a list that i'm trying to that i have to pick from necessarily <laughs> you know um, when someone you know uh when i when i meet someone who's doing something that i like if they want to work with me i'm i'm usually happy to try and make it happen um with a lot of those people i do have a lot of friends in the uh in the comedy world and like i guess what used to be kind of considered like the alt comedy world in the early 2000s from new york who you know eventually everybody moved to la and got kind of involved in tv and stuff and and through a lot of those connections um yeah i eventually like met rebecca sugar who does steven universe and and um she asked if i would collaborate she asked if i would collaborate on a song with her which then became that that role of steven's that you're referring to this the steg uh, merger <laughs> that's and, an, for those listening who aren't familiar that's the name of the character steven and greg yeah. steg greg, he gets a chance to merge with his dad it's very sweet <laughs> yeah and yeah. his dad is played by tom sharpling who's one of those kind of underground comedian people with right, wfmu right. that amy mann is tied into in no small part too you know she directed yeah. uh an amy mann video so the both is your band with amy mann talk about mm -hmm. that collaboration uh, i think of amy mann as one of the finest American songwriters of all time. So tell us how that grew into its own independent project. Yeah. Well, similarly, um, you know, I I'm a I'm a I'm younger enough than I'm not young, but I'm younger enough <laughs> from Amy that I you know I remember till Tuesday in the '80s and you know um, and was a fan. But we we became aware of each other's like solo work. I would say like around. 2000 or something like that and um uh in just a kind of ever tightening like loops you know wound up th uh, through that same kind of comedy world uh it's always you know interesting people are like how did you meet so-and-so comedian and you're like well they're people like they like music in the same way that <laughs> we like you know that we like these comedians that we're talking about um and so they you know sometimes they would reach out and say do you want to guest on this show and and both Amy and I wound up being frequent guests, musical guests on comedy shows. 
And that's how we met. That's how we really came into each other's like closer circles. And then uh, we did a little touring together. And it was just this kind of ever tightening loop where, you know, then we would in the middle of the tour, like she would say like, oh, you should let me play on you with that song. And, you know, maybe you can join me on this song. And so we started like playing together during each other's sets. And then that just became like, we should write some stuff together, which then led into actually making the album. Yeah, it's a great album. Ted Leo playing the Drake and Amherst this Friday. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We're speaking with Ted Leo, who will be playing solo at the Drake and Amherst this Friday. I wanted to ask you about the evolution of your own songwriting because the songs that you wrote for Chisel are so different from the songs that you wrote for the pharmacist, for you and the pharmacist, from the stuff that you wrote with Amy Mann, and then your solo album, which is entirely different, I feel like, tonally from the other three things that I mentioned. Um, how do you feel about the evolution of your own work, and how do you think that your solo stuff is going to continue to evolve? Well, I... I totally respect the listener's um, right to have their own reaction to everything <laughs> that I do. I mean, there's but threads, I don't, but... I don't, I don't think much of it is, is, is vastly different from any other part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that at the very least, there are through lines that are, that are pre pretty easy to follow if you, if you, if you try to follow them. Um, they might not jump out, you know, but... Um, um, and uh, and I think that even when it comes to the record with Amy, uh, there is like a uh, there is like a Venn diagram overlap area with us. And um, so if you're if you're listening to stuff from either of ours that isn't part of that overlap, you might go, "That's a weird idea that those two would write together." <laughs> but there is an overlap area, and um, and I think we kind of we we moved toward that in our in our own songwriting or i should say we were moving toward that in our separate songwriting toward that overlap area which led us to actually like go oh i wonder what it's like if we step into this actual overlap area you know <laughs> um but uh but i i guess i agree with you tonally about the if you're talking about the hanged man record like you know that's just um I think that for me, a lot of my music gets interpreted as being kind of peppy and, and chirpy and, and happy because of the, the energy that um, I put into a lot of the songs. But thematically for me, it's, it's usually not. It's like a lot of it is, is pretty heavy and dark. Um, you know, uh, it's for the last x amount of years you know 25 years it's been like trying to reach toward writing about some of the good things in life but never quite able to pull that out from under the constant um the large umbrellas that that uh you know, uh, bear down on a, on America with war and racism and et cetera. You know, it's like, um, maybe I wind up 
being a little too subtle about that stuff sometimes, which is probably good for <laughs> for selling records. You know, not that I sell any <laughs> records anymore, but um, but uh, but um, for me, even going to the like darker stuff of the Hanged Man, which is about a tarot card, just content warning. It's not. Um, it's not the <laughs> yeah. Um, Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. It, it's just it's just going it's just kind of moving a little farther you know to in one direction or another within a realm that for me is kind of always there Ted Leo um, we've mentioned that you come from the punk aesthetic and that there's a, a, a synergy between folk music and punk music your music as you just said is always had political underpinnings I know you played Occupy Wall Street, with people remember that from what feels like an eternity ago. I know yeah. you were part of Dave Eggers' project in the lead up to the election of Donald Trump in 2016, where a bunch of artists got together, including Amy Mann, to make uh, songs to try to, I think, maybe warn the American public about what was to come. Here we are again in 2024 and facing a, a very similar circumstance. What do you feel in, at all hopeful? And do you feel desperate? And how will your music uh, be impacted by what we'll, we're all likely to experience for the, <laughs> up through November of 2024? Yeah, light questions. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know what? Um, uh, I have my feelings about um, the the uh, the docket that we're being offered to, uh, to vote from. Um, <laughs> I'm not thrilled about, um, you know. I'm not thrilled about the uh, the list, but obviously I'm less thrilled about, about you know uh, half of it than, than the other one, than the other half. Um, Very diplomatic. Uh, uh, as far as how it'll affect my music, I mean, you know, this is the thing. Like going into Trump, I, I again, I mean. <laughs> I remember this back during the Iraq war Two people, people were like, well, it's, you know, times are tough, but it's going to be great for art. And it's like, man, I want to, when we're on radio, I want to curse at you so bad right now. <laughs> and I'm not going to do it because that is not the way to think about this. You know, like it's not the way to think about it. Art is there to help you for sure. And you got to like, let the artists do what they're going to do, but it's not a silver lining. You know, it's like, or if it's a silver lining in your life, okay, but don't wish for it. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not the way to think about it. <laughs> I agree. And <laughs> um, a weird, like, not quite sidestep, but like back to your songwriting. You've lived in a lot of different places along the East Coast. Do you feel that mm -hmm. any particular area has influenced the way that you write and listen to music? Mm, that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I think. I actually think that, so I spent, um, you know, I grew up uh, in, in Jersey right outside of New York and I was in a lot of New York bands. Um, and then I, uh, I was in college in Indiana, spending a lot of time out there and with Chicago bands. I, I lived in DC for a long time. I lived in Boston for a long time. I lived in Rhode Island for a long time. Um, I'm actually back in Jersey now. And I, in each place, I think that some of it probably is specific to the times that I was there, but uh, New York, for example, um, in the 90s, part of why I was happy to not be there, part of why I was happy to be in D.C. was that, um, you know, as as expensive as everybody rightly says it is now, it was already getting that way back then. 
Um, and I just felt that so many people were just so money driven. And I think that my, <laughs> my like, I had a reactive uh, reaction to that um, in, in my songwriting to a degree where I, I, um, I sort of reverted to um, by the late nineties to really wanting to dig into like political songwriting again, not mess around so much with pop music. Um, and I think that was a reaction to that. Uh, you know, at the same time in DC, it's impossible to escape the, the, the federal government, you know, <laughs> it, it suffuses the air, you know, and I also worked for CB, CBS news when I lived down there. Um, oh boy. <laughs> and so it was like, yeah, it was like, it was, you know, that's in the air, it's in the water. Um, it's, it, you're thinking about it all the time. Um, in Boston, I think in the music scene, when I was there, you know, there was a, there was a lot of university kids like transitioning in and out. It felt like a very transient city. And, um, well, I love Boston and, and I, it is kind of like one of my, one of my mini homes weirdly um there's a sense of being ungrounded there that that i also think uh affected the way i was writing at the time i got into a lot of more like like noisy dubby stuff like <laughs> things are just kind of floating sounds are just floating around you know and i know that sounds a little corny but i actually really think that that's true well we'll see what your visit to amherst will bring to music. Well, it's just me and an electric guitar, so <laughs> it's not going to bring. What is like? You have this beautifully. It's not ominous, but it, it's in in my like ideas. It's incredibly hopeful that there's things coming down the pipeline in 2024 mm. for you and the pharmacists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a so it's the it is the 20th anniversary of the Shake the Sheets record, um, which is one of those records that I think a lot, a lot of people are like. Yeah, it's so positive. And for me, it was it's just not. Like, I'm so exhausted. <laughs> I'm so exhausted with this war and with, you know, like all this stuff. Um, so, you know, it didn't take too long to come back around again. But um, <laughs> but we, we're going to be doing some touring. Um, uh, and I think uh, we're going to be, we're going to play that record, you know, in honor of the 20th anniversary plus other stuff. You know, so. Excellent. Ted Leo solo this Friday, along with Will Daly at the Drake in Amherst. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. We're looking forward to the show. That was a great talk. Thank you. Thanks no for having me. And find out more about what he's up to on his Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> Do you believe in something? drakeamherst.org to find out all about Ted Leo's show this Friday and again it's Patreon for more about his music in general. We'll hear about the oncoming storm from Dave Hayes the weather nut but next Salman Hamid tackles the superb owl and more. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 885 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Let's do it. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Time for some more Kitchen Table Astronomy with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid at your Amherst kitchen table. But before we get to the stars in the sky and the shooting stars... <laughs> Let's talk about the stars of the Super Bowl. You watched the Super Bowl last night. What'd you think? I thought the game was great. And I know we are in New England, so we are not supposed to 
talk about any other dynasty than the Patriots. Yeah. And we are not supposed to talk about any other quarterback than Tom Brady. But uh, no, I thought the game was great. And yeah. whatever the Black Ops and the Pentagon and CIA have done, I think they engineered the game perfectly. I think so too. They made it exciting because, you know, you, so many times we hear sort of like, you know, conspiracies that are boring. Yeah. Like, you know, like going to the moon, right? Like, you know, yeah, I mean, that's a, boring uh, that's a boring conspiracy. Like, you know, Kubrick, I mean, he did it. I mean, everybody knows that. But this one, I think they made it exciting. They made it a little unpredictable. Fourth and one, who knows? Like, you know, you're going don't... to overtime. Overtime, yeah. So, uh, so I really, you know, people spending time on their conspiracies, I appreciate it. Did you see what Biden tweeted out after the game was over? No. He tweeted a picture of Dark Brandon, as they call it, which is the picture <laughs> yeah, of Biden right. with lasers coming out of his eyes. And it said, just like we drew it up. <laughs> if, for those who haven't been following this, there is a legit conspiracy theory. I mean, it's not a legit uh, conspiracy legit. theory. <laughs> there legitimately is a conspiracy theory out there that believes that the Biden administration is behind Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs relationship. And all of this has been orchestrated so that Taylor Swift will come out and endorse Biden so that Biden will win re-election. And so for the dark Brandon meme to be tweeted out by the president last night as part of it is, I think, incredible. I don't know if that was part of the conspiracy or not, but Kelsey yelling out, Viva Las Vegas. Viva! Viva Las Vegas! I mean... To me, I was like, Taylor Swift is dating this meathead? <laughs> Who is just like barking at the end of a game? What does she see in this guy? This is now we are going deep into this, okay? <laughs> Don't come after us, Swifties. But uh, I thought that his version of Viva Las Vegas was a little bit inspired by William Shatner's uh, Tambourine Man. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Tambourine, Mr. Tambourine Man! Did you like any of the commercials in particular? I thought Michael Sarah he's always uh, really good for Sarah V. I'm Michael Sarah and human skin is my passion, which is why I developed this. Sarah V. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. It was the only one that you can really remember what the product was. Right. Uh, but the Boston one, I thought that was really good. And I think funny. that might have been the best thing. That was, the yeah. Life. The Dunkings. Dun That's right. I thought Ben Affleck and J-Lo and Tom Brady and Matt Damon in there. Oh, my God. Here comes the Boston Massacre. The Dunkings. Touchdown, Tommy on them keys. Play a coach. Got it. I'm open. And need no introduction, my partner. Sometimes it's really hard to be your friend. You said you were gonna support me. Dunkies! Don't, don't go away my heart. Why you dunking me, girl? Why you dunking me? Dunkies! My heart. How do you like them donuts? I'm so sorry. That was really funny. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was fine. And overall, it, I think that everything was very safe. There was no mention of any controversies or anything. So. Jesus spent $14 million to advertise during the Super Bowl, which I thought he maybe could have spent better. It's a choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also loved the Christopher Walken impersonation ad. You know, you look nice. Okay, with that. Hello, Mr. Walken. Does this table work for you? I love that they used Neil Diamond. I am, I said, in an ad. People, I don't know if they know or not, but we have mutual... Neil Diamond fans. Totally love Neil Diamond. <laughs> Back to the real stars, Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid. As most people know, a shooting star is not a star. It's not a star at all. A shooting star is a meteor that's headed for a fall. As say, they might be giants in a cover. When it falls to Earth, it becomes a meteoroid or a meteorite. And that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, so 
meteoroids, as you mentioned, fall from the sky and they provide you samples for which you cannot directly get. Uh, although, just as an aside, sometimes you do go and get samples, which, for example, Japanese, a uh, couple of Japanese space missions have done. And more recently, last year, there was a NASA mission uh, that went to an asteroid, Bennu, and got a sample and brought it back, the mission OSIRIS-REx. By the way, they had a lot of trouble opening the container oh, yeah, in which that. there were these samples of this asteroid. They finally did it. They just needed a, like, you know, to put it underwater. No, that's not true. <laughs> but they, they, they managed to do it. But other than that, the way we get information about a lot of information about the solar system, what it was made up of, especially early uh, information about the early solar system comes from these meteoroids that have been roaming around our solar system and then when their path intersects with the earth they, they land here meaning to say they crash here oftentimes if they are bigger in size they can cause a lot of damage dinosaurs rest in peace yeah uh, but then there are a lot of smaller ones to date i think there are over seventy thousand or so pieces of meteoroids that have been recovered here on earth and so found them which is great because it costs a lot of money to go to Bennu and try to take a sample and bring it back. This is like special delivery from the universe. It's like, you know, an Amazon purchase comes right to your door. And people often go, for example, to Antarctica because you can actually find them right above. You have snow there and then you can just see, hey, on top of it, there is a black rock in there. And you go like, well, that must have come from the sky. <laughs> or, or you can do the same similar type of thing in desert. But early this year, in fact, on January 21st, there was a meteoroid that fell uh, close to the city of Berlin. And the interesting thing about that was uh, this is a small meteorite, I think about a size, about a meter or so. But before it came through the Earth's atmosphere, it was already being tracked by an amateur astronomer. He was like, okay, well, this had been marked. It was about a meter big. And he's like, well, it's going to come through the atmosphere and crash on Earth. And you want to get meteoroid samples sooner when they crash on Earth because before they've been really contaminated by Earth. And so uh, this particular meteoroid, uh, it's called 2024 BX1. As predicted, it went through the Earth's atmosphere. It was being tracked. It formed a fireball because it was bigger in size. And from the color of the fireball, you could actually tell what you would expect, what it would be made up of. Because the colors will indicate what materials are made of. They burn at a certain color in the light spectrum. We learn a lot about the universe through spectroscopy like this. That's right. And then the way it was moving, the way sort of like in the fireball was, they could actually figure out approximately where you can find these or this little piece or these little pieces that are left over. And then immediately after, a team of uh, meteoroid hunters, actually led by uh, an astronomer from the SETI Institute, he actually was... Search in for extraterrestrial intelligence here, here in the U.S. Here in the U.S. And he actually flew from immediately uh, from California to Germany because in like, okay, because it was expected it was around there. And uh, they actually found small pieces, ping pong ball, walnut-sized pieces <laughs> of this meteoroid. But what's interesting is the meteoroid that they found is a particular type called an obrite. A Wasn't she the Secretary of State? <laughs> no, no, this is A-U-B-R-I-T-E. So these are called obrites, and they are actually a bit different, and they are, they are much rarer. They look like more like rocks here on Earth. 
uh, because the other meteoroids, when they go through the atmosphere, they become like glass-like and they look like black. Because they get burned up through the atmosphere. And they're oftentimes, they have a lot of iron in there, uh, iron and nickel. This particular meteorite actually um, uh, has like more translucent glass. And they found these pieces and so far, we have found, and by we, I mean humans, have found out of those over 70,000 meteorites, only 80 of them have been of this particular type. So it's really precious. And these type of meteoroids are named after the first one that fell in a, a, a small town in France, Ubre. It's A-U-B-R-E, uh, but uh, yeah, so, uh, and, and I have to look for the pronunciation, uh, A-U-B-R-E-S. And so uh, my deep apologies to French speakers. I'm butchering it, but yeah. yeah. I'm not good with French either. <laughs> so, uh, and and it, it fell in 1836. And I was like, 1836, what did people know? How did they find out? And it was really hard to find information about this particular history of this particular meteoroid. But I did find in the catalog of collected meteoroids because it lists where they are and how they were found because all of these informa this information is important scientifically. And it turns out this town, and I, and I looked for it even today, the town's population is 420. Uh -huh. And so it's a small town. <laughs> love their marijuana there. <laughs> this meteorite fell on, they said, on a paved pathway. So again, 1836, next to a shepherd. <laughs> and uh, and the shepherd picked it up and actually brought it to his master. And again, I'm using air quotes in there <laughs> to his master. And his master actually broke it into a smaller piece. It was like almost a kilogram in size. And he broke it up into a smaller piece and put it on a shelf. And 10 years later, somebody looking for and found out and heard about like, you know, that this piece of rock had fallen and wanted to get it to a museum. And he got it in 1845 from this person. So that, I think it's a fascinating story that obviously people actually value things that fall from the sky. There have been sacred traditions about that. American Museum of Natural History has a meteorite as well, uh, Tamanavas meteorite or Willamette meteorite, but it was used by, it's an iron meteorite that has kind of like holes in it which can hold water. And so Native American, the indigenous tribe, Tamanavas tribe uh, near um, uh, Portland, uh, Oregon, they actually thought like, you know, that, that the water that collect, collected in there was sacred water. And so it was used for medicinal purposes and other things. Same story has been repeated over and over again in human history because you go like, hey, wait a minute, something fell from the sky. In Islam, uh, in the Kaaba, that's in Mecca, the, the, the sacred space, on one side, there is a piece of meteoroid. There is a debate about whether it's a meteoroid or whether it's sort of like, you know, something that got melted by a meteoroid. And people kiss that as a sacred gesture towards it. So these meteoroids hold a lot of meaning for humans, but also they provide clues about the solar system. And in some ways, scientists also consider them as sacred or, I mean, what, what, is, what is sacred? I mean, something that you value, something you find very precious, something that you think it gives you information beyond just simply what it is. And so scientifically, these meteoroids are actually a window into the formation of our solar system. So what's cool, Mr. Universe, Hampshire College Astronomer, Dr. Salman Hamid, about 
these Aubrites is that A, it's named after this place in France. It's a very specific type of manifestation of the way that these, the materials it's made of, and it's very rare in the history of meteorites that we've found, and that this one that just fell in Germany earlier this year might be connected to another place in the solar system. Yeah, so there is a debate about the origins of these Aubrites, because as I mentioned, they are different from most of the asteroids that fall. And most of the asteroids come from, for example, the asteroid belt. Uh, they are sort of like leftover material. This is between Mars and Jupiter. These are pieces of rocks that didn't form. But then we, astronomers have found, or meteorite hunters have found, I think about 500 that have come from the moon. Things strike the moon and they can actually eject from there. And also about 300 from Mars. Well, these Aubrites, some people think that it actually has come from the planet Mercury. That is really rare. And again, as I said, only 80 of those have been discovered. There is an idea that early in the history of the solar system, just like the Earth was hit by a large body that ended up actually creating the moon, we think that, that Mercury was also hit by a body and it actually ejected some of the material and some of the material that, of course, Mer what Mercury was made up of, and that these particular type of asteroids, those are actually pieces of Mercury. And this particular obrite that was discovered, uh, that actually went through our atmosphere on January 21st, it was picked up. Humans picked up those pieces on January 25th. We think that the analysis suggests that it may be a piece of the planet Mercury. When we go outside during certain times of the year, on a clear night, we can see a meteor shower. We can see these shooting stars, which again, are not stars. They're wonderful to see, but remarkably common. Even Tonight, you might, if it's clear enough, you could go and potentially easily see a shooting star. Why, if there are so many shooting stars all the time, do we only have 70,000 over the course of human history of these pieces that we've been able to find and analyze? Most of the things that you are seeing in the sky as shooting stars, those are like size of dust grains. Uh, like, you know, so those are really tiny and they all burn up. But they're, even though they're so tiny, they burn so bright that we see them. That's exactly right. So it's a look for, so occasionally you see a bigger one where you see, oh, there is a glow. You can see a green one, for example, it's up again, uh, burning up in the atmosphere and it provides a particular information about that as well. Those are the fireballs. So there is a likelihood. Not that... the whiskey. <laughs> those right. are gross and will kill you. <laughs> the material can survive to the ground. And, um, about 10 years ago, I think there was that, uh, the one that exploded over Siberia. Yeah. And which the a lot of people are actually, incredible, the, yeah. because during the daytime you could see that. And then they actually found this piece, actually a large piece of rock that was uh, to the ground. So th that's one of the reasons that you see a lot because there is a lot of dust grains that are in the atmosphere. And as they go through, they burn up. And on average, if I remember correctly, you can actually see about eight an hour on a normal night, like, you know, and of course, when there are meteor showers, and what that means is basically Earth is going through some dust that is left over, oftentimes from comets. So our Earth's orbit passes through that leftover dust or whatever you want to call it. And as it goes through, those dust particles go through our atmosphere and give us a spectacular show. And of course, 
it, it is also responsible for all of our wishes to come true. Right. So that is really a crucial part of the purpose of those dust grains burning up in the atmosphere. So that's the reason. And also 70% of the earth is, uh, is water. Out of those that survive, they go into the ocean. I look at the other way around that actually it's quite incredible that we have found 70,000 of those. I wonder when Taylor Swift's star will stop burning so bright, crash through the atmosphere, maybe somewhere in Las Vegas with her meathead of a Super Bowl winning boyfriend <laughs> shouting the whole time. I have mixed feelings about that. I can't believe we are back to Taylor Swift, but I have mixed feelings about that meaning to say, I think from what I know, from my deep research into uh, the Kelsey and Taylor Swift phenomena, I think he's a nice guy. He seems like a nice guy. Great voice. I, I think she's flying a little too close to the sun. We already have a comet saying. named after, right? Swift Tuttle? No, no. Appropriately, the storm. Weather is happening, and it's explained for us by Dave Hayes, the weather nut. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Catch all things considered right here on 88.5 at 4 o'clock. Hello. Dave Hello. Hayes, the weather nut. Monty, Bill Monty. And Khalees, too. Hi. Hi, Khalees Smith. Hi, Dave Hayes. How are you doing? Couldn't you? I'm good. Yeah. Tired. Because whenever a storm yeah. like this is a brewing, Dave Hayes, the weather nut, is a working. And for those who don't know who Dave Hayes, the weather nut, is, he's got 50,000 plus Facebook followers where he does what I call armchair meteorology, but is beloved by tens of thousands in the greater Western Mass region with these forecasts that lack the drama and the hype that perhaps some other meteorological outlets would push out there. And uh, as many people know, we're expecting something to happen this week, Dave Hayes, the weather nut. So what are we expecting? It's been a very challenging forecast, actually. I mean, there's definitely a storm that's tracking through and kind of out of the deep south today and tomorrow. And originally, it was thought that this was going to be kind of like a widespread 6 to 12 inch snowfall and maybe a little bit more in some areas. And then, uh, like the weather does, you know, some subtle changes downstream. Downstream just means where the weather's coming from. In this case, is kind of down towards the Texas, Louisiana area. These subtle changes happened yesterday and kind of changed the thinking and that the storm is more likely than not going to track more south than it was originally thought. So today's a nice day and tonight's going to cloud up. By tomorrow morning, we should be seeing snow moving in kind of either side of sunrise, I'd say between 3 and 6 a.m., 4 and 7 a.m. It's going to be interesting to see what happens because this, this storm has trended south. I think the brunt of the storm, whatever it presents to us, is going to be sometime between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. It's not going to last very long. It should be out of here by, I think, mid-afternoon. It should produce generally like a, I'd say like a 3 to 7, 4 to 8 inch snowfall in the valley. It could be, I think it will be more in kind of Springfield to Worcester Point South in northern Connecticut. I think it could be as much as 7 to 14 inches of snow, especially as you go deeper down into Connecticut. But I think it's going to really be a lot less up in towards Greenfields and points west from there, up in southern Vermont, southwest New Hampshire. It might not be much at all. It might just be like one or three inches of snow. And there's a low chance, uh, you know, based on some recent guidance, that this whole thing could either bust to the downside or really just hit those low ranges, just become kind of like a one-inch north to seven-inch snowfall south. So that's how it looks at the moment. What is the thing about changes in the south that makes such a big impact 
here? There's plenty I still don't know about it, but I know that part of it, there's, there's always the common kind of understanding that, you know, there's 93 radio sound or balloon launch sites from the National Weather Service across the country. And so, you know, they launch these weather balloons and they kind of go up, 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 and they, and they track and report back all of the different kinds of data, you know, whether it's pressure or temperature or wind and wind direction and dew point and all those things, moisture content. And those only go up twice a day in the country. And there's really, they're much more sparse over the southwest U.S. And, you know, weather typically comes west-east across the country. And so I think that might have played something into that and in that once that system kind of got further east out of that kind of more sparse data zone, some changes were noted to happen and the storm could turn into not that big of a deal. But right now I'm still holding on that it's generally going to be a moderate snowfall for most of us and that northern Connecticut could and probably will see the most snow of anyone around here. Because Dave Hayes, the weather nut, loves snow. I mean, snow is wonderful. I love snow. We yeah. don't get enough of it in the Triangle of Disappointment. Yeah, you have called it the Triangle no. of Disappointment, where uh, Western Mass, not necessarily the Berkshires, but the Valley in particular, where this would be getting less snow than maybe was originally anticipated, Dave Hayes, whether or not. I love that you have explained to me why we live in a Triangle of Disappointment, those of us who live in the Valley. Can you uh, <laughs> remind our listeners why it is a Triangle of Disappointment for snow levels? Well, well it's, it's only, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that's the, that's the important uh, modifier. <laughs> fire there for snow lovers because <laughs> it's the triangle of rejoicement for lots of people me who do not like snow you know it's it's a number of things i mean part of it just is the fact that we're we're a little more north we're a little farther away from coastal storm tracks but a lot of times it can be the difference of just the, the fact that the valley is a lower elevation area and it's flanked by hills especially you know higher hills to the west a little bit less to the east the elevation factor, you know, can sometimes mean it's it's snowing up in the hill towns and it's raining here. Other times, um, it has to do with just the general flow of weather across our part of the world, which is generally west to east. Say, let's say it's cold enough to be snow everywhere. Snow kind of comes over in a storm that's tracking more west to east. The hills, through a process called orographic uplift, ooh, um, yeah, ooh, multiple sil- multiple syllables Fancy. there. Fancy. Yeah. The hills create their own weather. They force air. Air has to rise over them. When air rises, it condenses. When air condenses, it precipitates out the moisture in whatever form it is, depending on the temperature. And then as air comes into the valley, it it tends to sink. You know, air that sinks is also known as high pressure or higher pressure. You have high pressure. When you have high pressure overhead, it's clear out that air is sinking, drying out. It's a drying Mm -hmm. motion. So sometimes that the valley will, you know, you'll, you'll get what's called shadowing where it'll snow pretty good, you know, to the west of us, and then it kind of dries out and it's less so here in the valley, and then it kind of picks back up and accumulates a bit more over in, like, the Worcester Highlands and stuff. So there's a few different reasons why uh, our beloved valley is uh, disappointing for snow lovers. <laughs> but great for me! <laughs> so to sum up... Hey, but great for Monty! Yeah. That's right, yes. <laughs> to sum up Dave Hayes the Weathernut's forecast about this storm that is expected, tomorrow, sometime before or after sunrise, most of the stuff's going to happen during the morning and the early afternoon, and then it's going to be out of here, and it's looking, unless you're southerly like Connecticut or those regions, that it might be more disappointing if you like snow, fewer inches. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, fur- the further north you go, the more disappointing it will become <laughs> for you if you That's love 
the no. way it's supposed to work, and, uh, Dave Hayes. Yeah, no. Well, with our mountains and the, the Berkshires, and we just learned that's why we're sad. People yeah, in the Valley are sad go. because of the Berkshires. We blame you. No, no, we, we blame do you not. Berkshire. No, no, we don't. No, no, we love the Berkshires. No, we don't. We, sure no, do. no, we, we don't blame the Berkshires. Scratch that. We love the Berkshires. <laughs> Dave Hayes, the weather night. But yeah, it's like a mod- mod- moderate snowfall. That's what it looks like tomorrow. I like it. Then we we're, we're, we all win. You get a little snow, and I get a little snow. Next time we'll actually ask yes. you what the difference between a nor'easter and a blizzard is, because I genuinely don't know. Is well, look, quickly, is this a nor'easter? It is a nor'easter. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, the storm is definitely going to be deepening. It's just going to be passing pretty far south of us, and it's going to create a, a north some northeast wind gusts. I'd say probably like fifteen to twenty five miles per hour or so. It definitely qualifies as a nor'easter. And blizzards just have faster wind speed, right? Blizzard doesn't have to be a nor'easter. A blizzard basically is defined by you have to have sustained or frequent wind gusts of 35 miles per hour or more, along with falling or blowing snow that creates a visibility of a quarter mile or less. So in other words, you can have a ground blizzard. You could have had like a powdery snowfall that fell two days ago, and then a big wind comes through and it's blowing 50 miles per hour through the day. That's a blizzard, even though it's not actively snowing, although most blizzards are when the snow is actually falling from the sky. Love it. Ground blizzard sounds like a band. Yeah, totally. All of these things sound like great (laughs) band names. totally. I think we should form that band, actually. Okay, I'm down. Dave Hayes is in a bunch of bands (laughs) and plays bass excellently. When he is not uh, forecasting to the 50,000-plus people on Facebook, he's also on Twitter, and you can support his uh, forecast by going to westernmassweather.com. Thank you so much, Dave Hayes, the weather or not. Thank you, Monty. Thank you, Khalees. Of course. Do you like Tuesday the on the Fabulous 413, Les Bombe Tombe Roulet, because it's Mardi Gras. And there's an organization out there seeking to give that party a little focus by bringing art to the people in order to evoke change on both climate and racial levels. So we'll speak with the folks from Blues to Green about building community through music, their annual jazz festival held right here in Springfield, and the legacy of saxophonist Charles Neville that inspires and drives them and find out all about their event that's happening at White Lion on the 13th, which, by the way, that's tomorrow. Fat Tuesday is tomorrow, so make your plans to be at the brewery celebrating even though there's snow. Special thanks to Spouse doing this song with Dave Hayes himself. They Happy tricked ho- Dave Hayes into playing bass on this song. He didn't even know he was playing bass on it. And JJ, who's been on our show a million times, then presented this Dave Hayes the Weather Not theme song, which I know I love it's a that beautiful, story. beautiful community effort all around. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. Yeah, the guy loves weather. And he's also a nut about it.